Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful to you for all your mercies, all your love, all that you have provided for us. For Jesus, we ask that your spirit will come, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, enable us to lighten the world with the truth of your kingdom that you might come soon. Give us wisdom as we study today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven in the quarterly Psalms, and the title is Your Mercy Reaches Under the Heavens. And the memory verse is from Psalms 57, 9, and 10. And we're going to read the New King James and then from the remedy. And it says in the New King James, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. And from the remedy, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. I will sing your praises with the family of God, for your great love is the basis of life in the entire universe and your truth, the foundation of the smallest particle of matter. Do, do these sound different to you? Or the same? Do you, do you, do you see that one says uh, your mercy reaches into the heavens and the other says your great love is the basis of life? in the entire universe? Do you understand God's mercy to be something different than his love or is his love and mercy the same to you? Well, he couldn't have mercy, he didn't have love. So this leads us over to Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, and notice in the first paragraph of Sunday's lesson, it says the following. Psalms 136 summons God's people to praise the Lord for his mercy as revealed in creation. And in Israel's history, mercy, the Hebrew kesed, means basically steadfast love, conveys God's goodness and loyalty to his creation and to his covenant with Israel. The Psalm shows that God's immense power and magnificence are grounded in his steadfast love. And in fact, the, the Hebrew for mercy is the same as the Hebrew for steadfast love. So many other translations, NIV, Good News, New English, New Revised Standard, English Standard, New Century Version, all these versions actually translate it as God's love rather than God's mercy. It's clear and more understandable. And I appreciate that about um, your paraphrase where it's not as clear in the King James what exactly that means. Because you could misinterpret mercy for love and change those words. So thank you. Thank you, yeah. So what do we understand God's love to be? Is it merely sentiment, emotion, positive attitude? Or do we understand God's love to have a functional element, operational, directional, motivational, motivation to action? Yeah. And that actions that are those that those actions are beneficial to others giving altruistic do we understand that god's love compels god into certain actions and restrains and forbids other activities yes yeah. yes and so what does love compel a person to do when the object of that person's love is in danger rescues them Exactly. Isn't is doesn't when you see the object of your love in danger, doesn't love compel you to action? Yes. yes. And aren't the actions you take designed, intended to rescue, to save, to protect? Yes. Is love ever the source 
of harm, evil, torture, or death. No, no, no. Well, what about a pastor or a church that teaches God is the source of inflicted pain and suffering and death as punishment for sin? They're wrong. Immediately, they're presenting him as something other than love, and they try to twist that to say that that's an act of love. That only happens because they believe the lie that God's law functions like human law, and therefore justice requires the infliction of punishment. And if he didn't use power to punish, then he lets chaos happen. So it's a loving thing to prevent chaos, and therefore he punishes. But they're not actually worshiping the creator anymore. They're worshiping a creature. If we go back to creator worship, then we understand that God's laws are the basis of life. And if we're out of harmony with them, and the creator stops using power to hold at bay what those actions lead to, then we separate from the source of life and die. So it's a completely different understanding depending on whether you see God running his universe like a Caesar runs Rome or whether you see God as creator. But does love sometimes act in ways that given the situation results in transitory pain such as a doctor setting a broken bone or a parent cleaning dirt out of a child's wound? Will love do those things? Yes. Yes. Does that mean love is causing harm? No. And this is where people confuse much of God's activity in the Old Testament, where he is actually acting in ways to preserve the avenue for Messiah, to save, to protect. He is restraining. He is putting some people to sleep and so forth and so on. All of this is therapeutic intervention because he loves and wants to save humanity from eternal death. But many will then misconstrue that and say, oh, that pain happened because God acted. Oh, that parent doesn't love because they just put some some um, medicine on a wound and the child cried. But I don't think the pastors look at it that way because I've never heard it presented before that it was a way to keep the avenue open for Christ to come <laughs> to attend this class. Well, I can tell you within Adventist circles, they, there was a book written over 100 years ago called Education. And in the book Education, the author of that book wrote that the students should learn to view the word as a whole, comparing all the various parts to the grand central theme. And that scripture is to be viewed, 66 books, as telling one story, the, the plan of salvation, the fall of man, God's original purpose in creating man, the two antagonistic powers that enter into every phase of human existence. And so if they actually took that wisdom and applied it, then they would see that, in fact, there's one actual thread of truth running through the entire scripture and one plan of salvation being worked out. And they would be able to connect these dots. But instead, many people fall into the Romanization of Christianity. God's law works like human law. And then they look at all the systems and rules and how these rules were for that time and these rules are for this time. And, and they get all caught up in this covenant and that covenant and this uh, this uh, uh, place and time. We're going to get into it here in a moment. In fact, right now, the, the from our from our paragraph we just read, we can actually continue this thought. The phrase, mercy conveys God's goodness and loyalty to his creation and to his covenant with Israel. Think that, sir, to, to his covenant with Israel. Does Israel have a covenant that is restricted to Israel? That is Israel's covenant only. Well, isn't the covenant to Israel the covenant of the promised seed? 
which was promised to Jacob, but before that was promised to Isaac, but before that was promised to Abraham, but before that was actually promised in Eden in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head. So the promised covenant was promised to the whole human race. So when we think of the covenant to Israel, are we allowing our minds to become sectarian and restrictive? Oh, a special covenant to Israel. They have a special covenant. Or are we seeing the larger view, the outworking of God's promise, God's covenant to the entire human race, and realizing that the Bible is a narrative focusing on the branch of the human family through which God will fulfill his promise in Genesis 3.15? And then wouldn't it be more accurate to say, instead of what the lesson said, we would say it this way. Mercy conveys God's goodness and loyalty to his creation and to his covenant with the human race that was being worked out through Israel. Now, do those two things say the same thing? God's covenant to Israel or God's covenant to the human race that was being worked out through Israel? Don't they actually say something slightly different? Yes. yes. Good point. Okay. And most of Christianity thinks Israel stands in some special position. Well, they did. They did as the biological branch of the human family through whom Messiah was coming. That was their special calling to contain the scriptures, to protect those scriptures, to, to have the object lesson theater with the sanctuary and act that out, to be witnesses for the what? The covenant of grace given in Eden for the entire human race. And that covenant was told in Genesis 3.15. And then it was promised again to Abraham in Genesis 22. It says, if in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. This is the same covenant. This, is, this covenant is the covenant of grace for the entire human race that, that Abraham's descendant, would be the one who fulfills the promise, Genesis 3.15, and it, would, it then narrows down through Isaac's descendants, not Ishmael's, and it narrows down through Jacob's descendants, not Esau's. And this is why the Bible record follows this family. Not because this family has in it something inherently different than every other branch of the human family. They are born in sin and conceived in iniquity just like the rest of us. It is because God found Abraham faithful and chose his family through whom Jesus would be born. This is the whole Old Testament narrative. However, Tim, I know that from childhood, I've been raised in a Christian home, studied the Bible, Bible stories, until I came to this Sabbath school, no one explained the Bible in all 66 books exactly like that. It was only for the coming of the Messiah, and that's why the stories were told that way. So if, if I'm just one person here, I don't know other people and other Christians, if they're just looking and they read that, oh, Isaiah or, or, the, or the Israelites are the promised people, they're misunderstanding the entire 66 books like I have for most of my life. Type of thing. So thank you for clearing that up. And I think it's a message we also need to share with other Christians. So let me give you a Bible text to confirm what I'm saying. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ were clothed, have clothed yourself with Christ. 
There is neither Jew or Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You're Abraham's descendant, in other words. You're heirs according to the promise. The promises, the covenant given to Abraham is not restricted by biological descent to the, the, the Jewish genetical his, genetic history. It is to those who receive the faith of Abraham and receive Christ as Abraham did. This is the promise, and it was a promise to the entire human race that the Messiah would come, and all who receive Messiah receive the promise. So is there a covenant to the Jews that is not to the rest of the world? Some might argue well, it was for the land, that Abraham was promised the land of Palestine. But that regional land was promised as part of the global covenant. Abraham's descendants were promised to occupy the regional land until the Messiah came. And then the promised seed, Jesus Christ, would fulfill the full covenant promise to be accomplished through him. And here is the real land that Jesus said, the meek will inherit Palestine. Yeah. <laughs> no, the meek will inherit the earth. And the real promise given to Abraham was that through his descendant, we become heirs of the promise. And the covenantal promise is that the entire planet earth will be reclaimed from sin, restored to human governance, and will be the home or the inheritance of the righteous. Now, further biblical support for this position. Remember the writer of Hebrews, remember what the writer of Hebrews wrote, because the writer of Hebrews agrees with, with my assessment. In chapter 11, we have the hall of faith, where we have this long list of faithful people through Bible times. People like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived in the regional promised land, uh, according to Hebrews 11.9. Yet, according to Hebrews 11.13, even though they lived in that land, they, quote, did not receive the things promised, unquote. But, the, but these faithful people were, quote, according to Hebrews, looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And all of these people of faith, quote, did not receive the things promised. They saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, unquote. Get your mind around what Hebrews is telling us, especially in context of this land that supposedly is the promise. This land of Palestine is not the promise. The promise is the earth made new. And they were only going to occupy that land until Jesus came to fulfill the true covenant and then ultimately restore the whole earth. But Hebrews is telling us that all of these people, that's the word, not mine. You can look it up in Hebrews. All of these people listed there did not receive the things promised. And in that list is Enoch. Enoch is one of all of these people who was taken to heaven who is already in his internal, his glorified body, already has received eternal life. He lives in, in heaven with Jesus. Surely he's received the, the promise, hasn't he? Not in its fullest sense, he hasn't, because what was promised to Abraham and his spiritual descendants is that the meek will inherit the earth. 
And when God took Abraham out and says, look to the north, look to the east, look to the west, look to the south. In other words, all points of this planet, as far as you can see in every direction, this is going to be your inheritance, the world. And Enoch has not received that and will not receive that until after the thousand years when sin and sinners are wiped out and the earth is made new. And then we receive the full inheritance that God has promised us. And, and it's so sad that the devil is so easy to trick people on earthly temporal things and that there's ongoing, never-ending, millennial generational fighting over a little tiny piece of land in the Middle East that is governed by sinful people practicing sinful methods and the governments of this world who use coercive law and coercive enforcement and constant warfare and constant killing, which Jesus himself said is not his kingdom. His kingdom is not of this earth. So the point is that God was fulfilling his covenant to humanity through Abraham's family tree. But the covenant is not restricted to Abraham's genetic descendants. It's for the entire human race. Now, bottom question in the lesson says, how does the image of Jesus on the cross dying as our substitute for our sins most powerfully reveal the great truth about God and his love that his love endures forever. Before we discuss this question of Jesus' death as our substitutionary savior, let me affirm, because I have been accused more times than you can count of not believing in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, let me affirm that we in this class teach and believe in the substitutionary nature of Christ's sacrifice in our behalf to save us from sin. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, quote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that substitution right there. But here's the reason. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Praise Note the Lord. According, according to Paul, the reason for Christ's substitutionary sacrificial death was not legal. It was not penal. It was not a payment. It was not to assuage God's wrath or propitiate God's anger. For God was never the problem. When Adam sinned, God did not get changed. God's law did not get changed. The condition of Adam changed from sinless, loyal, faithful, trustworthy to sinful, disloyal, unfaithful, untrustworthy, fear-ridden, and selfish. Yes or no? Yes. 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 Thus, Jesus became our substitute so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not so that we might be declared righteous while we remain unrighteous. No, no, that's the lie of the penal substitution fraud. No, we become the righteousness of God so that we sinful human beings might be cleansed from sin and restored mm -hmm. to God's perfect ideal for humankind. Yeah. So let's walk through this. We believe that Jesus came and voluntarily put himself into a position that was not naturally his own for the purpose of delivering us from the position that was naturally our own. He took our place. He substituted himself. We should never deny this. This is eternally true. And, and hopefully you know, we'll mark this 
this day and recording because it's going to be it's going to happen again. You will hear someone say Jennings doesn't believe in substitutionary atonement. You can go to this lesson. You can play this clip. And I'm going to explain exactly what we believe. But the question then arises, why? Why was it required for us to become righteous? Why was his substitutionary sinless life and sacrificial death necessary for humans to be saved from sin? How does Christ's voluntary and substitutionary sacrifice achieve the righteousness of God in humanity? If God is love, and he loves the world so much that he sent his only son. If God is merciful, full of mercy, if God pardons freely, as Isaiah 55, 7 says he does, if God does not keep a record of our wrongs, as 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says he, he doesn't do, he doesn't do that, then why couldn't God just forgive us outright without the death of Jesus? That's a good question. No answers? <laughs> well, the, the, the answer, of course, is that he did forgive us outright, and that's because he loved us and forgives us so much that he did send his son. But his forgiving us outright, his extension of forgiveness freely, his pardoning of us freely, uh, does not actually fix the sin problem that we have. Amen. The problem was not in God. The problem was in us. And his being forgiving, his being loving, as soon as Adam sinned, he ran and hid and, and, and was running and hiding, and God was forgiving and chasing after him. But God's loving attitude didn't fix the problem. That Adam's still running and hiding. And, and so what salvation is, it requires, now certainly it's true, let's, let me just make this caveat. It is certainly true that if God were unforgiving, if God were angry, if God were uh, resentful or hostile toward us, there would be no hope for us. It certainly requires God's forgiveness because if God were not forgiving, he would not provide the solution to our problem. So, so let's be very clear. Yes, our salvation requires God's forgiveness, but, but that was never an obstacle. God was always forgiving is the point I'm making here. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay, but to be saved from sin requires that we be cleansed from sin, healed, that sinfulness and sinners be replaced with sinlessness, with righteousness, with purity, with holiness. And once Adam sinned, get your mind, does that make sense so far? That sinners have to be made sinless or pure or holy in order for us to be saved from sin. Yes. Sin has to be removed from us. Yes. Okay. And, and um, once Adam sinned, every human being has been born infected with sinfulness. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5. We're born in fear, in selfishness. We're born in unholiness. Thus, Jesus had to partake of this humanity and merge his sinless, holy, pure self with the damaged humanity to be tempted in all points like we are, yet with his human abilities, choose holiness, choose righteousness, reject the temptations of sin and ultimately take the fallen, diseased humanity to the cross, destroy the death-causing element that Adam put there, and restore the life-giving purity of, of righteousness that comes from God. This is reality. It's design law. It's restoring, cleansing, purifying, fixing the problem. As, Jesus, as John the Baptist said of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 
Jesus came to take away sin, to destroy death, to destroy the cause of death, and thereby heal creation. Now, let's, let's take this a step deeper. Can God, at any time he chooses, create a new species? After Adam sinned, God was still free, if he chose, to gather some more dirt together, form a new body out of the dirt, breathe into that new body the breath of life, and create a new sinless human being. Yes? Yes. But if he had done that, would that new sinless human being be part of the creation that he created in Adam and Eden? No. Get your mind around that. That's huge. That new human being would not actually be related to Adam and Eve. It would be a new, similar, yet distinct creation. Creating a brand new human would not save Adam and Eve. It would not save this creation that was created by God in Eden. When God made Adam, now get your mind around what I'm going to share with you next, because it's really, these are new uh, insights that have come to me as I've been studying it this week. When God made Adam, he breathed into Adam the breath of life. Every other human being is an extension of that breath of life, that life given to Adam. When Eve was created, she was not formed out of dirt and God breathed into her nostrils the breath of life. She was formed from the living tissue taken from Adam's body. Tissue that already was alive, that already had the breath of life in it from God that he breathed into Adam. Thus, she is an extension of Adam's life. The living energy that God had breathed into Adam. And you guys know the the Greek and the Hebrew words for breath or breath of life? You know that word in the Greek or the Hebrew? Hebrew is ruach and, and, uh, and Greek is panuma. From where we get pneumonia or pneumatic means breath or wind. But there's another word that, that the panuma is translated or the ruach is translated into. What's the other word it's translated into? Spirit. Same word, wind. Or it's also translated sometimes ghost as in holy ghost or holy spirit. Okay? It's the same word. It's the life energy that was breathed into Adam, that animated him, that brought him to life. It is the internal motivational energy that invigorates and animates all of us. That's the breath of life. Because God gave Adam and Eve procreative abilities, that very same life energy breathed into Adam is shared with every single human being. That, and, and the sad reality is that the pure, holy, undefiled spirit, life energy, breath of life he received from God did not stay pure, holy, and undefiled. His sin changed the motivational spirit or energy of his being from pure love to fear and selfishness. And we are all born with that life energy motivated now with fear and selfishness, contaminated. And this is why Paul actually writes that we need to be sanctified in spirit 
in mind and in body. We need a new spirit, a new, and David prays, creating me a new heart and right spirit. So why was it needed? A human, what, what, so what was needed then after Adam sinned and his spirit became corrupted with fear and selfishness and we are all born in sin, we're all born with, with a spirit of fear and, 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 and selfishness. What is needed? A human being that is part of this humanity, part of Adam, part of this creation, who partakes of the very same life that God gave in Eden, that same life energy that's being passed down generation to generation, that life which is now infected with fear and selfishness so that the Savior could purify that life. Mm, amen. He could destroy that terminal infection and restore in the spirit of humankind God's perfect love the protocols of life. Thus, Jesus came as the second Adam, partaking of the very same human life that was given to Adam through his mother, Mary, descended from David, it says in Romans 1, the humanity that was damaged and infected with fear and selfishness, but because his father for his human body was the Holy Spirit, Jesus was also invigorated with spiritual purity a life of pure spiritual energy undefiled by sin. And as a real human being partaking, partaking of the life given to Adam, he could face the temptations like every human being does, yet Jesus was able to choose with his human abilities to say no to every temptation and purify that life energy and at the cross, Jesus destroyed the fear, selfishness, energies, if you will, that Adam brought into and rose again on the third day in a cleansed humanity. And now Jesus stands. Now, am I, am I losing you or is this making sense? Oh, it makes, it makes sense. And now he stands in the presence of God, not only in his pre-incarnate authority and position, but he stands in the presence of God where Adam was intended to stand, at the head of humanity, in a purified and cleansed humanity, as our substitute, as Adam's substitute in the heavenly council. And through faith, then, we receive, get your mind around this now, the same divine energy or breath of life or spirit through the Holy Spirit who takes the victory of Christ and reproduces it in us so it's no longer I that live but Christ lives in me. And that new spirit, when we die to the old man, the old spirit dies, we rise again with new life. We have new vitality. We have new drives. We have new motives. We are no longer motivated or driven by fear, by lust, by passion, by self-centeredness. The, the carnal drives, the carnal energy, the corrupt energy we ex experience from Adam. We now have the energy to love. We have the motivation to help, to bless, to trust. This is not ours naturally. This comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit who is taking the purified life 
that Jesus purified for us and reproduces in us. Amen. So the question, how does the image of Jesus on the cross dying as our substitute for our sins most powerfully reveal the truth about God and his love endures forever? Because it reveals that God's love is not something a compassionate, not, not simply a compassionate attitude. It is the very basis of life itself. And Jesus restored that life-giving love, spirit, energy, breath of life into the human species, cleansing the life that he gave Adam from the contamination that Adam put on it. And we can receive that new life in Jesus Christ and die to the old way. Mm. Okay, thoughts, questions? <laughs> Gobsmacked. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Did the people before the cross, okay, before he did all of this for us, did they have that same help, that same transforming power mm -hmm. from the Holy Spirit? So do we have evidence of that in Scripture? Yes. So what did David pray in Psalms 51? Take not your Holy Spirit. Holy, Spirit. Holy Spirit from me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. right spirit within me. So clearly there's evidence. What about Enoch? What about Elijah? Mm -hmm. Do we have evidence that their spirits were cleansed from all this fear and selfishness because they walked right into heaven? So it was retroactive. God lives outside of our timeline. Right. Yeah. God is not restricted to linear time. So if Christ never came and did what I described here, then that no human could be saved because no human could receive a purified human life that Christ purified for us. But once Christ achieved it, God who lives outside of time can apply that anywhere in time. But if he doesn't have it, he can't apply it anywhere. So Enoch and Elijah's translation into heaven are linear historic evidences that Christ would succeed because they were only saved in the exact same way we are saved by receiving the life of Christ. By faith, by faith, by faith. We all receive it by faith. Nobody receives it in any other way. It's by faith. What is faith? Trust. We open the heart and we say, I surrender my life to you. And the Holy Spirit comes in and we get new life energy. Have you not experienced that in your life? That your motives, the energy, the passion that drives you shifted from fear and security and me first to love for others and, and blessing. Have you not felt your life energy shift? Yeah. Amen. Yes. 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 That is receiving the life of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. That is spiritual cleansing and spiritual healing. But I thought when Christ died, he said that he would send someone to take his place, the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit yep. when he came Pentecost. So, yep. but the Holy Spirit still dealt with people back in the Old Testament. Yep. Why did he say he would send the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit was already here? So does one member of the Godhead mean that the other member of the Godhead cannot function as well? No. So in the Old Testament, Jesus can act on his own. The Father can act. The Holy Spirit can act. So the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. Wasn't, wasn't Jesus also active in the Old Testament? Yes. Does that, so does, because the Holy Spirit was active, does that mean Jesus couldn't be? Or because Jesus was active, that means the Holy Spirit couldn't? So we're asking, okay, so we find that, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both active in the Old Testament. The question is, why does then in the New Testament, Jesus said he's going to send the Holy Spirit? Right, right. Okay, 
because Jesus yeah. sacrificed something significant to achieve what I just described. He, for God so loved the world that he loaned Jesus to humanity for 33 years. No. 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 <laughs> he gave Jesus. Jesus became human and will retain humanity for all eternity future. Prior to his incarnation, he was an infinite being who could appear in any form he wanted. He could appear in the form of an angel. He could appear in the form of a human being as he did to Abraham, but he was not human. He was an infinite being at those times, just manifesting with physical form. Mm. But he became human at the incarnation. And he retains humanity with all of its limitations. He sacrificed his omnipresence. And so he told his disciples, it's expedient for you that I go. When I go, I will send the comforter. And it's expedient for a variety of reasons. One, if Jesus would have stayed on the planet restricted to human um, physical location, then it would restrict how many of us could have direct access to him. Going to heaven and sending the comforter, every human being in the entire planet can simultaneously, through the work of the Holy Spirit, have direct access to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And, G and the Holy Spirit is Jesus' representative on earth. And he says when the Spirit comes, he will not speak on his own. He will speak that which he hears. And the Holy Spirit is not coming to speak his own message. He is speaking the message of Jesus to us. He listens to Jesus pleading. And so when you read various things that suggest Jesus is in heaven before the Father pleading, you bet he is because Jesus is fulfilling the Father's purpose to save humankind. And under the purview of the Father's loving, gracious desire and passion for our salvation, Jesus is carrying out and pleading for you and me. And the Holy Spirit takes those pleas and communicates it to every human heart. I loved you. I died for you. I'll heal you. Trust me. And so the Holy Spirit is working on all the hearts to get us to open the heart for spiritual renewal and rebirth and re-cleansing and cleansing. So it's expedient that I go and I will send the spirit and the spirit will come with a new, in a new way with a new mission to represent Christ in a new way that wasn't fully necessary because Christ could make his own pleading, so to speak, in the Old Testament. But I found this study, and I'm going to be working on a few blogs that will be expanding on this. But uh, this is this is profound. It's also why there's such a such an attack on the work of the Holy Spirit today, because the work of the Holy Spirit is an essential element for victory from sin. And since if you and, and Satan attacks in all places, he tried in Old Testament times to stop Jesus from ever being born by destroying the branch of the human family through whom Jesus would be born. He failed. Jesus was born. He tried when Jesus was a baby to have Jesus killed before Jesus could fulfill his mission. Simply being born as a sinless being and being killed as a baby as a as a blood sacrifice would not have accomplished anything. Jesus had to live as a human, be tempted as a human, overcome as a human, and, and purge this infection that Adam put and purify the wellsprings, the spirit, the life energy that 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 invigorates and animates all human beings. He had to cleanse that life energy, that spirit, and, and rise again. And thus he had to finish his mission in order to be the same. So if he could be killed as a baby, he doesn't, he doesn't cleanse anything yet. Okay? It's objective. It's real. It's how God created things. But he failed in that mission. 
And Jesus fulfilled. So human species is now eternally secure because Jesus is a real human being who lives sinlessly and purged the infection and lives in heaven as the head of humanity. So the Satan's only choice now is to prevent what Jesus has procured, the pure spirit from being restored in every heart who trusts Jesus. And how can he do that? Well, by continuing to get us to distrust God, not believe in God. But for those who do claim a faith in God, to deny the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't let the Holy Spirit into your heart. You claim a legal religion. You claim you believe in God and he paid a price for you. And in heaven, Jesus is pleading your account and your sins are being erased from records, but you don't have the spirit working in your heart. You're not saved. There is no hope in a legal religion. It is a fraud. It is a counterfeit that cheats people out of the actual rebirth, regeneration, renewal, recreation, healing, unity that comes from the indwelling spirit. And then there's the attack on the idea there's no Holy Spirit anyway. Let's just get rid of him. So all of these things are part of Satan's strategy. Other questions? We'll go on to Monday's lesson, if not. So I encourage you to think about this. It's it's huge, it's powerful, it's profound. Um, Monday's lesson, this takes us to Monday's lesson, because Christ came to fix what Adam did to the species, and because Christ fixed it, then we can partake of that victory. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers, as Peter said, of the divine nature. We get new hearts and right spirits, the mind of Christ, reborn, recreated, law written in the hearts and minds. Notice all the action of all the metaphors of Scripture are transformational inside the sinner. Nothing is going on penal legally at some little courtroom scene. Okay? And so this then takes us uh, to Psalms 51, and the uh, paragraph, first two paragraphs in the le- lesson say, King David pours out his heart before the Lord, asking for the forgiveness of sin during the, spiritual, sp- the spiritually darkest moment of, of his life. Forgiveness is God's extraordinary gift of grace, the result of the multitude of your tender mercies. King David appeals to God to deal with him, not in accordance with what his sin deserves, but in accordance with his divine character, namely his mercy, faithfulness, and compassion. Divine forgiveness involves more than a legal proclamation of innocence. It produces a profound change that reaches the most inner parts of human self. It brings about a new creation. The Hebrew verb bara translates create, uh, depicts divine creative power. Only God can bara, only God can produce a radical lasting change in the repentant person's heart. And I want to say, I'm so, there's so much to like in these two paragraphs. And I, I want to just affirm the lesson for, for pointing out the, that the salvation process is the recreative healing of the inner man uh, through God's mercy, through God's grace, through what Christ has achieved for us. That's, this is so well said in so many ways. But what about the idea of Forgiveness involves a legal proclamation of innocence. You know, this idea, you notice how it's just dropped in as an assumed truth, as if we know forgiveness is is when the legally, when the guilty are declared legally innocent. Um, and and but but forgiveness includes much more. And the lesson wants to, to then go ahead and, and emphasize the much more, but they drop this other idea in as an assumed truth. Do you see that? Okay. The question is, is it true? Or is this a lie that they've dropped in on us to, to, to continue to validate the lie about God's law? When will it ever be true in universal history and reality that Adam and Eve are innocent of sin? Never. Never. 
When uh, does accepting Jesus as our sinless savior change the history of what Adam and Eve did? Do any humans ever get to say, other than Jesus, that they are in fact innocent of sin? No. So if we are not in truth, in fact, in reality, innocent of sin, and God, and, we, and, and God proclaims us innocent of sin, but in fact we are not innocent of sin. What are we teaching about God? That God is bearing a false witness. That God is declaring something to be true when in fact it is false. And that's what the penal legal theologies do. They make God into a liar. They have him be a false witness bearer. And they will make all this vicarious substitution. Oh, no, it's, he, he, it's, it's based on the merits of Jesus. Yes, that's true that you're saying that, but he's still declaring guilty to be innocent, and they're not. And the Bible nowhere teaches this. This is all made up. It's human stuff, okay? You won't find it in Scripture. Here's what the Bible teaches gets declared for the righteous who accept Jesus. This is what the Bible declares, that these sinners who are saved are declared healed, redeemed, recreated, renewed, reborn, perfected, restored, made Christ-like, made righteous, set right, put right, made holy, purified, made faithful. None of us ever get declared or proclaimed to be innocent. But we, we, all the saved, will be declared healed, reborn, recreated, perfected, renewed, delivered, cleansed, made right, made holy, purified. This is the true gospel message. This is the the message when we worship the creator. We understand his laws are the design laws. That God takes us sinners damaged, corrupted, dirty, impure, and restores us to perfect, holy righteousness. That's the true gospel message. In fact, it is the truth of our sickness and sin and God saving us from it that gives us an eternal story to tell the song of the redeemed. If we are declared innocent... And all of our records have been erased, so there's no record of our sin crimes. And our memories are wiped out, so we will not remember any more of the sins that have been cleansed. Exactly, we have no sin. Then what witness will we have in eternity? If you had a terrible cancer, suffering greatly, and Jesus healed you fully to robust, perfect, vibrant health, would you not have a wonderful story to tell? Yes. Yes. Do you need to forget how sick you were? Or as you recall how sick you were and how healthy you are, how you've been saved from that sickness, do you not rejoice in Jesus and want to tell everyone about him? But what what if after your healing from this terrible cancer, you had your memory erased and you no longer recall that you were even sick? Do you have the same appreciation for Jesus? And that's also what Satan wants to do with this penal legal fraud. He wants to destroy the love and appreciation we have for God and what he's done for us. Mm-hmm. Tuesday's lesson, and the first paragraph says, the psalmist's great affliction is related to his own and his people's sins. 
the people's sins are so grave that they threaten to separate the people from God forever. Scripture speaks of the records of sins that are being kept for the judgment day and the sinners' names being removed from the books of life, the book of life. Why would sin separate people from God? Is it that God cannot stand it and gets offended, or is it that people in sin cannot stand holiness and flee from God's presence? When Moses came off the mountain, reflecting God's grace and God's and reflecting God's glory and, and holding out favor and, and, and blessing to the people, what did the people do when they saw the glory of God shining in Moses' face? They they begged him to cover it because they could not tolerate the heavenly light. When Jesus appears at the second coming, what do the wicked cry for? The rocks and the mountains to fall. They cry to be hidden from Jesus. Please note that sin cuts people off from God and that alienation happens in the heart and mind of the sinner. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid, but God in love and mercy and with forgiveness ran after them and has been pursuing humanity in sin ever since. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. For God so loved the world in sin that he gave his only begotten son. So sin does not cause God to pull away from us. It is unhealed, unremedied, unremoved sin in the sinner that causes the sinner to pull away and cut themselves off from God. Get your mind around that. You will find many branches of Christianity teaching that at some point God has his cup full. He can't take it anymore. His wrath overflows. His anger burns hot and he will eventually turn away and he will not be able to take it anymore and lash out to punish the sin. It's all a lie. Now, what about this idea? Scripture speaks of the records of sins that are being kept for the day of judgment. And the lesson references Daniel 7.10. Huh. Well, let's explore that because I'm going to tell you, folks, this is a very, very sad and disappointing misunderstanding that and misapplication of Scripture taking a scripture that doesn't have anything to do with the judicial judgment of sins and twisting it to make it appear as if it does because they view the Bible through the Roman imperial human law lens. Let's read Daniel 7.10 and and let you actually inquire what's in the text. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before the throne. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open, Daniel 7.10. And that's the, that's the text that is used to support the idea that the record of sins that are being kept for judgment day. That's the text supporting that. Is there anything in the text that says these books that are being opened contains the records of people's sins? Is there anything that says that? Is there anything that says this is a legal proceeding? Well, it says court. Okay, so it says court. How do we know it's not a tennis court? (laughs) 
No, I mean, I, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. I'm just pointing out that the word court here is being interpreted as a legal court. Well, they'll go to the Hebrew and say, well, it means uh, a place of judgment. Okay, it does mean a place of judgment. That's correct. It means a place of judgment. And, and some use the word court. Others will say the judgment was seated instead of the court was seated. The judgment was seated. Okay. And if you hear the word judgment, what word do we hear either court or judgment through? What law lens? Human law or design law? And people who have the Roman law view, when they read these texts, will all automatically project in a human legal court system with a judicial proceeding with the with a the divine heavenly judge sitting in rulership. And so the books must be the books of all the sins he's going to judge people by. But there's another type of judgment that is not legal in nature at all, that is straight out of the Bible, that is the central judgment that must be made before the sin problem can be resolved. It is the central judgment of the entire great controversy. The entire universe is required to stand in this judgment, to be part of this judgment. It must occur. It's required for the sin to be eliminated. Judgment. And it's the judgment that Satan wants the whole world never to see or participate in. Mm. It's the judgment that Paul identifies in Romans 3, 4. And it's the judgment that this penal legal frauds keep obstructing people from participating in. And here's what Paul says in Romans 3, verse 4. New English translation. Let God be proved true. Let every human being show up as a liar. Just as it is written so that you, that's referring, referring to God, will be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The issue in the entire great controversy is whether God is trustworthy. Amen. Amen. Satan has lied. He lied to angels in heaven. He lied to Adam and Eve on earth. He's been lying through all human history. He's been lying about who God is, how God functions, how God's government functions. Are we safe with a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and including knowing the future, even before it occurs? Are we safe with such a being like that? We have to decide, do we trust him or not? We have to make a judgment. So Daniel describes a time when the heavenly court is seated, but is not a legal court. It is the heavenly royal court, the court in which Jesus is coronated and Jesus receives his kingdom. And when Jesus in his humanity receives his throne, then the books are opened. And so the onlooking universe can see the evidence and make a right judgment about God so that the great controversy can be ended. For the hour in human history has come. The hour of his judgment has come. This is the hour for people to finally make a right judgment about God and stop judging God to be no different than a Roman dictator who makes up rules and the source of inflicted pain and suffering. And the court in Daniel 7, I'm going to blow your mind now. Get ready. You ready to have your mind blown? Yes. The, court, the court scene in Daniel 7 is the exact same court scene we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, but the revelator expands and gives us more detail. And you can go in this afternoon and read this, but I'm going to give you a quick summary. In Revelation 4 and 5, you will find that just as in Daniel 7, here's what we find in Revelation 4 and 5. There is a great assembly in heaven. The Ancient of Days has taken his throne. He is surrounded by the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Jesus comes and is recognized as worthy, is coronated as the righteous ruler. And a book is presented 
which is now being opened. And that book is sealed with seven seals. Now you compare those two. Daniel 7 is not a courtroom scene. It is not a book of our recorded sins. It is a different book entirely that is being opened. And in my view of what's happening, the book sealed with seven seals is God's book of foreknowledge. What God foreknew would happen before he created the first intelligent being, he recorded the entire history and sealed it with seven seals. And then he began to create, and he created recording angels. And the recording angels have been documenting in absolute perfect detail history as it actually unfolds. And at some point in time, Lucifer rebels, and that history is recorded. The entire great controversy unfolds. The earth is created. Adam falls. Jesus comes, sacrifices himself, uh, and, and so forth, to redeem and redeems humanity. And a time comes in history when a grand court is seated and the books are open. And those books are both the books of recorded history, recorded by the recording angels and the book sealed with the seven seals. And as they compare what actually transpired with what God foreknew would happen, the universe is persuaded by the evidence that though God is all-powerful, who lives outside of time, who has foreknowledge, he never uses his power and his abilities except for the good of his creation, that we have real freedom and real liberty with God. We are not coerced and we are not manipulated. And that all the sin and pain and suffering is from Satan's lies and fraudulent representations about God, that God is judged worthy of our worship. This is the judgment in Daniel 7. This is the scene in, in Revelation 5 and 6. And we are called to investigate an investigative judgment to investigate the evidence that God has given, to investigate the lies that have come down through the Roman system of Christianity and to reject and come out of this Babylonian system and return to worshiping him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst, to reject this imperial made-up law system with its penal legal system and worship our creator again whose laws are design laws and open our hearts and minds to receive the indwelling spirit that we can be so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that we cannot be moved, that we are sealed to the kingdom of God. This is the, the scene here. And when this scene is completed, then the final ends occur. And then there's another book of records in Revelation 20:12 at the great white throne judgment from which the wicked are judged according to their deeds. And what is this book? It says right in Revelation 20:12, it is the book of life. And what's recorded in the book of life? The names of people, which is their characters, their individualities. And why are the deeds there? Because all those who have rejected Christ have solidified in their characters the wickedness and rebellion, and they remain there, and thus they are judged for who they are. They are diagnosed. You are, you are still selfish. You are still a pervert. You're still a, a murderer. You're still a hater. That's who you are. You're diagnosed accurately to be exactly what you are, and thus the judge in the end, separating the sheep from the goats, the judgment of the judge to separate sheep from goats does not make goats into goats or sheep into sheep. They are what they are. Mm -hmm. And that's the final judgment in the end. Right. Tim, Questions? Tim, what a profound, this book with seven seals, 
what an absolutely profound evidence of a God that loves so deeply that before sin ever occurred, that he chose to, know, to both know what would happen and still walk down that path of pain oh, of creating and yeah. letting life continue and expand even though he knew that they would turn against him. And that he shows time after time he could have wiped this out and start all over again. He didn't. He could have blipped Lucifer out. He didn't. He chose still to walk with us, show us his heart, yes. and invite us back into a relationship. Amen. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Do you all see the incredible, powerful, life-changing, beautiful message that we have been blessed with when we return to worshiping God as our creator and understand his laws or design laws. Amen. Amen. And do you see how completely obstructed the true beauty and light and power of God is when we insist that God's law works like Roman law in this penal legal system? Yes. And this is the final issue. It's not between rival churches. It's between God's law and human law. Because which way you understand God's law determines immediately how you understand God's character and principles to operate. And then it changes everything, what the sin problem is, what God had to do to achieve our salvation. And it, under, and it, and it determines immediately whether we actually trust God himself or we trust some intermediary action that is done to God to meet the legal needs so he won't hurt us. And the penal legal systems never really trust God. They trust the interventions being done to him. And, that's, and that means ultimately they're not experiencing the true indwelling spirit and are not coming into the one, the unity that Christ prayed that we would have. So I, I think that to me, there's a, there's a whole bunch of exciting stuff in the lesson this week. I hope you go home and, and reflect on it and maybe have some questions. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you have, have achieved, how you create life always sinless, always perfect, and how you breathe into Adam the breath of life, an extension of your own life given to Adam, but sadly Adam corrupted that life and it is passed down to all of us. But Jesus came, took up that life and purified it. And now in Jesus Christ, we can receive through the spirit, a new heart, a right spirit, a pure spirit with new motives of love. We, we ask for your indwelling spirit to cleanse, restore, renew, and seal us in righteousness to make us the righteousness of Christ, that we can fulfill your purpose at this time in history, O oh Lord, to be your lights in this world. And we ask also, Lord, that you will begin moving out of the way the obstacles to this message that are on this planet, that are keeping the, the tender hearts out there who would respond from seeing the light. Remove them out of the way if, the, if they are presenting falsehoods, that the true light can lighten the world, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. 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 Amen.